It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The American medical system usually does a great job of treating patients with acute illness and injury. But when it comes to chronic conditions or unknowns, many people experience a lower quality of care and a lot of personal frustration. Of course I hoped for a treatment, but I actually I mostly wanted recognition that what was going on was real, that it was ruining my life at the time. Journalist Megan O'Rourke was chronically sick for 12 years before finally getting a diagnosis and finding treatments that worked. During that time, she was doubted, dismissed, and made to feel invisible. She realized a lot of other people were silently having a similar experience, which inspired her book on the subject, The Invisible Kingdom. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. Using her personal experience, meticulous research, and interviews with almost 100 other patients, O'Rourke connects the causes and effects at play. In her book and in this talk, she explains how larger forces can lead to the subpar treatment so many chronically ill people have experienced. Lisa Sanders, professor of internal medicine at Yale and the author of the diagnosis column in the New York Times Magazine, guides the conversation. Here's Sanders on stage at Aspen Ideas Health. Your book is called The Invisible Kingdom. Tell us why, what is the invisible kingdom and and how did you end up living there? (laughs) Yeah, so... um, The title actually was the last part of the book to come together. I'm terrible at titles, and it felt like this book in particular needed a really apt title. But I knew from the beginning that this book was about what I call in it the silent epidemic of poorly understood illnesses such as autoimmune diseases, myalgic encephalomyelitis, also called ME-CFS for short, Um, conditions like fibromyalgia, dysautonomia, which is a disorder of the autonomic nervous system, And I came to the subject because I myself had gotten mysteriously ill in my 20s and experienced this roller coaster of very vague and subjective symptoms, and it took me more than a decade to get any diagnosis. Um, So I was really interested as someone who had undergone that, um, but also as a journalist, in why in an age where we have a diagnosis almost for everything, it feels like, right? Ice cream headache has a diagnostic name. It gets phenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. Right, why couldn't someone who is as sick as I really ended up being get a diagnosis? Um, And what I came to report on over close to a decade in ways that became this book is that a lot of these conditions are what we call invisible illnesses. They're, They're hard to see the symptoms of. We don't have great tests for many of them. Some of them we do. Um, they relapse and remit. They can fluctuate in severity. Um, to this category, of course, during the pandemic was added long COVID. And I started really thinking at a low point in my own journey when I felt incredibly isolated and lonely after being kind of patronized in a doctor's office and told maybe everything it was really in my head and the you know, extreme symptoms I was feeling weren't, in fact, organic or physically real. It was just this crisis of feeling incredibly lonely and invisible. And in that moment, though, I remember quite vividly realizing that the irony was that I was hardly alone and that there were millions of 
people in similar circumstances. Um, data suggests that something between 23 and 50 million Americans live with autoimmune disease, for example. And that's where the, the word comes from, the title rather, comes from, which is if individually as sick people living with often marginalized illnesses, it's hard for us to be seen, I do think that there's a kind of collective action and collective retelling of certain illness narratives that we need to you know, engage in, and it, together it becomes a kind of invisible kingdom. And hopefully that kingdom is a bit more visible and <laughs> becomes the visible kingdom. Yeah, that's a long answer. That's great. Um, you were pretty disappointed in how the medical establishment that you encountered uh, treated you, um, dealt with your concerns, dealt with you, really. Yeah. What happened? And, and, and why do you think it happened that way? Yeah. Well, you know, in the book, I'm very clear that I'm talking about the medical system, that I think in many ways the medical system, as it's now built in the main, there are great exceptions, um, is really not built to treat chronic, certain kinds of chronic illness um, and to offer the kinds of care and empathy that I think many patients in crisis may need. But it's particularly not set up to deal with diseases that it doesn't understand very well yet, right? There's a real challenge for science when confronted with a patient whose body is at the edge of medical knowledge. So I think in my own case, I had really wonderful doctors. I loved many of my doctors. Um, but I was young, I seemed fit, I had like great cholesterol levels, I had a very stressful job, and so my doctor was like, look, maybe you have lupus, the test came back negative, and then she's like, I think you're just stressed, I think this is anxiety. And at the time, I internalized that, right? And I really took in the idea that I was perhaps imagining my symptoms, or maybe I was, you know, someone who complained a lot, um, and I would sort of try to connect to others and find out, did they feel the way I did? And I can give you a quick sketch of what I was undergoing at the time, which is bouts of really debilitating fatigue, where it felt like my body was made of sand and I could barely hold it together. Um, terrible night sweats. I was in my 20s. I was not menopausal, and I was having drenching night sweats and having to change my clothes in the middle of the night. Terrible joint pain, and then very particular neurological pain that would roam my body and feel like someone was sticking tiny knives um, in my arms and legs. And it would come and go. And very little on my tests looked wrong. So I'm quite sympathetic, in a sense, to my doctors. In a way, the book is asking the question of why were these wonderful doctors not able to help me, right? And the answers, I think, have to do with some of our concepts of disease, some of the history of medicine, the siloization, the siloed nature of our current system. And I think also some pre-existing narratives about who is sick, who gets to be sick, and what kinds of people aren't sick and might be thought to be, in fact, either attention-seeking or malingering or one of the worried well, right? Um, so in a way, um, you know, although it took more than a decade to get any kind of diagnosis, in a funny way, I don't blame any individual doctor for that. I will say too quickly, I was a young person whose job was changing, and so I had to switch doctors a lot because my insurance changed, and so I didn't have a GP who'd known me for a very long time, and I think that's a really important factor when we look, talk about reimagining chronic illness and searching for a kind of coordinated care and a way of believing patients who have mysterious symptoms. 
Well, as the teacher of residents who are going into primary care, I appreciate the plug <laughs> because it's really the job of the internist to be yeah. the quarterback of all right. of this. Um, but doesn't always happen. Doesn't I always recognize happen. that. Yeah, we have a very fragmented system. So I think for many people it doesn't happen. I don't think I was an unusual case. Do you think that the fact that you were a woman played a role in how your symptoms were heard? Absolutely. So, you know, when I started writing this book, I'm a journalist, so I, I come to the questions I write about with a kind of healthy dose of skepticism. So whenever I'm writing about my own experience, one of the first things I ask myself is, was my experience unusual or unique, or was it representative in some way? Um, and so over the 10 years of writing the book, I did an enormous amount of research and interviewed about 100 different people living with illnesses. And, you know, what is very clear when you start looking at the research is that women are women face two barriers to getting good care. The first is there's a knowledge gap. We know much less about female bi women's biology than we do about men's. Um, there's been whole periods in medical history where tests and clinical trials were run almost exclusively on men. Um, many animal studies are done primarily on biologically male animals. And so there's just a basic knowledge gap, right? Um, for example, when the drug Ambien came onto the market, they didn't test it specifically on women, and they ended up having to recall it and create a new dosage that was half the suggested dose for women because women were taking it and getting into car accidents the next morning because they still had so much of the drug in their system, right? Um, so there's that, that knowledge gap. But there's also a trust gap. There's also this gap, this, a term that Maya Dusenberry uses in her great book, Doing Harm. When you go as a woman to um, a doctor, there is a pre-existing history of, let's call it skepticism, <laughs> about some of what you might say, especially if your symptoms can't immediately be matched to lab tests with really clear-cut results. You know, we could spend an hour tracing why that history is there, but it goes back to the advent, the, the kind of rise of the diagnosis of hysteria in the 19th century. It has its roots in misogyny. It has its roots in unconscious bias. But there's very good data showing that if you go in with subjective symptoms like pain and fatigue, you will be seen as someone who's speaking a psychological problem rather than an organic illness. And so one of the questions I take up in the book, which really interests me, is why, when we don't know the answers, do we assume psychological realities instead of medical realities we don't yet know? Um, to give you two quick examples also of how women are actually treated, not just researched less, but treated less well than, than men. Uh, some studies that came out have shown women wait on average 13 to um, 10 to 20 more minutes in the ER than men do. Another study found that between 13 and women are less often treated with opioids when they go in um, ex experiencing severe pain, something up to 25% less than, than men are. Um, women undergo cardiac catheterization when they present with chest pain far less often than men do. Women of color, it's even lower, right? So there's all these ways in which we know that unconscious bias, sometimes maybe conscious, but I think often unconscious, plays a role in the actual science that's being practiced. Good. Um, you know, you're looking at how medicine deals 
with chronic illness, but really you lived and focused on a certain kind of chronic illness. Illnesses where, for the most part, testing isn't available or isn't reliable. And, of course, testing is how medicine confirms a diagnosis. When there's no test, there's no way to say with certainty, you have this. And and we all know that words are important. Is there a better way to identify or describe the residents of this invisible kingdom? Something more than chest chronic illness? Were you able to come up with something? I mean, you're a poet, among yeah. other things, and a writer. <laughs> Help me. Yeah, no, I'm, it's really as a poet and a journalist that I wrote this book, I think, which is to say that a lot of what I was trying to do was, let's put it this way, I believe in the power of storytelling, right? When we, when we have good stories, we see each other more clearly. When we have bad stories, they obscure the reality before us, right? They become like a darkened pain through which it's hard, hard to look. Susan Sontag talked about this brilliantly in her book, Illness as Metaphor, where she really critiqued the ways in which cultures tend to take diseases they don't understand and make metaphors of them. She's not saying, as a patient, don't use a metaphor to describe your pain to a doctor. She's saying, as cultures, we have to be really careful about what kinds of narratives we tell when we don't know all the answers, right? So you're exactly right that although I use the word chronic illness, and in some ways this book is interested in chronicity, in, in illness that, that doesn't, you, you don't recover from, which is a kind of category of story I think we find hard to listen to, right? We like stories that are stories of diagnosis, struggle, and overcoming. Um, I am most specifically interested in this category of what I call poorly understood illness. Um, Not a great poetic phrase. (laughs) So this is one of the things I struggled with the most, which is how do we describe these these people? And I think the invisible kingdom did become my, my phrase for how to think about those of us who are, you know, living with these illnesses and living at that edge of medical knowledge. And just to pick up something else in your question about testing. So when I asked myself the question, why was it so hard for me and the millions of others who were also undergoing this to get diagnoses? Um, I had to do a lot of reading about the history of medicine, a lot of talking to medical historians. And what became very clear is that we've pivoted to, for very good reasons, very important reasons, a system based on measurement Right? We really want to see what the disease or problem is. We want to know it's there, and then we want to take evidence-based medicine and use it to fix the problem. But what if that first round of tests that everyone can get that's pretty accessible to many Americans, not all, it aren't the tests you need? Right? What if there is measurement out there possibly, but you're not getting those tests? And then what if we don't know how to measure the problem because we haven't studied it enough to know what to look for? Right? Why, what happens to those people? And what I'm interested in as a cultural critic, as a writer, is, again, this reflexive desire to psychologize those patients rather than to pause and say, what might we not know? What more should we be looking at? How do we listen to the voices of these thousands of patients and bring their wisdom into the the picture? This is all the more important right now because of the crisis of long COVID. And I'll just say quickly that if we'd been listening to some of these patients for the past decades, we'd be so much better set up right now, I think, to to deal with um, something like long COVID. 
and maybe it'll go backwards. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> There's a great, incredibly wise line towards the end of your book. You say, where science is silent, narrative creeps in. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So the book is very much filtered through my own experience of going on a quest for answers. Um, And if you read the book or if you just listen to me talk about the book, you'll realize that that quest led me in some pretty wild directions. Um, I'll just say that when Trump talked about, you know, putting ultraviolet light in people's veins and maybe that would make the coronavirus go away, well... I know what he's talking about, <laughs> right? So, so I definitely did um, a lot of different stuff. Why did I do that? Because science was silent, right? Because I had been going for years to search for answers, to search for better treatment. I was becoming increasingly debilitated over this time, right? If I started out as sort of mostly functional with bad bouts, I ended up almost entirely bedbound. Um, I was teaching at Princeton. I would, could make the trip once a week to teach. And then I would collapse on the train afterward in a kind of post-exertional collapse that's common in many of these kinds of illnesses. And the conductors would have to really help me up out of the train. And I could get a taxi home and, and make it home. And then I wouldn't be able to leave my house for days. So many people did not even know that I was sick because they would just see me that one day and they wouldn't realize, right, the, the, the kind of toll it took. So what did it mean when I say where silence is silent, narrative creeps in? Well, because one of the problems we face is when science doesn't treat these illnesses, patients need answers, people living with illness, we want, we're just like healthy people. We want to have our lives. We want joy. We want relationships. We want children. I wanted children. So you begin to make a different risk assessment, right? And the risk assessment for me changed and became one where I was willing to try almost anything because my life had disappeared and and the possibility of a future disappeared. And when I think about one major point that I want to make in this book, it's that these illnesses may not look... um, you know, horrific in the, in the one moment when you show up in the ER with symptoms, but they rob you of a, of a possibility of living, right? And many people who have them feel kind of dead while alive. So I was interested in then, you know, what kinds of stories we tell ourselves as people living with illness, what kinds of alternative medicine we turn to, what kinds of self-blame we pick up. Um, many of the pe- people I interviewed felt that their autoimmune diseases were a sign that they were living an inauthentic life, that somehow the fact that their immune system was turning on their own body meant that they were not living the correct, the right life for them. And um, that broke my heart because, you know, there's sort of scientific reasons why autoimmune disease is on the rise. It doesn't have anything to do with individual responsibility. Um, So... You know, just I approach this as a doctor. And so a lot of the things that you tried and a lot of the things that worked for you would not have been an option or a choice of most regular doctors. So you didn't, you know, you want, you you wanted more than a story from your doctors. You wanted a treatment. To make to help you get better, how did 
what do I do? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. When I have to practice evidence-based medicine. Well, I think one of the goals of the book is to t- bring uncertainty into the space of the doctor's office, right? And to talk about and to animate the, the person's lived experience of illness in a way that hopefully allows a doctor, you know, a conventional doctor to sort of see and understand some of the pressures and complexities of what you're navigating as, as a person with illness. So I will say that actually, first of all, of course I hoped for a treatment, but I actually most of all wanted recognition. I mostly wanted recognition that what was going on was real, that it was ruining my life at the time. I since have gotten many answers and gotten much better. Um, and that I was not... Um, you know, that it was that, that my perception of reality wasn't off. Why did I want that? Because if no one is recognizing the suffering you're living through, it's rendered meaningless, right? And I think many people who live with illness can actually accept that they're living with illness. But what's very challenging to accept is that your suffering cannot add to the heap of human knowledge, right? And that you can't get just the ordinary compassion that we all crave from from others. So I had a neurologist, to get to your question, who looked me in the eye and said, look, I do not know what's wrong with you. I don't think I'm going to know what's wrong with you. If I, I have some suspicions that you have certain kinds of neuropathy, I have no real treatment for you. But she paused and she looked me in the eye and she said, but I see that you're suffering, and I believe you, and I have other patients like you. And I can't tell you, I lived off that exchange for like six months. I did. I just, it meant the world to me. I felt seen. I felt recognized. I felt that somehow there was a record of my, my existence. And so I do think that the very first place to begin, and a thing that maybe doctors don't always understand faced with patients like me, or as I was, is how much we really look up to you and how much that simple act of saying, I don't know, but I see you, carries weight, right? And then I think I will also say I had a really wonderful doctor. She's um, a head of women's health at a medical center, an academic medical center in New York. And she was the kind of doctor who was willing to say, There's, we don't know enough about your condition yet, but I have seen some of my patients in situations like yours do better without gluten. She said, I don't, can't point you to a study. I don't know, but you might try it. So she was able to make kind of risk assessments about, like, trying this is not going to harm you. It might help you. And she was, and that really set me on a very important path, which made a huge difference in my life. Yeah. So what doctors call what you have is a phrase that I don't like and trying to get rid of, which is medically unexplained symptoms, you know, which... Even though it sounds objective, I think to many doctors means it's all in your head. So I'm looking for a new phrase for that. But now we are in the middle of an epidemic of medically unexplained symptoms that's followed in the wake of this incredible pandemic. We call it long COVID. Do you feel that there's any connection between what you had, what many of the people in your invisible kingdom had, and long COVID, and how's that all going to work out? Is it going to work out? (laughs) Uh, I can't speak to that. But 
Um, absolutely, there's a connection. I, I write about long COVID in the book. I, I want to start by talking about medically unexplained symptoms as a phrase, because it drove me wild as a patient. And I'll tell you why. Because my symptoms were not medically unexplained. My symptoms were not explained by the relatively small battery of tests that doctors ever conducted on me. And in fact, as soon as this chair of women's health conducted some further testing, immediately some answers emerged. But that took 12 years to get any doctor to do that second round of testing. 12 years, right? Now, I didn't advocate for myself very well. I will say that. But if I, as a relatively privileged, educated person, couldn't advocate for myself very well, how, how, you know, how are other people who are less set up to advocate for themselves doing? So I have a real problem with that phrase, and I, and I think it's a great thing to think about in terms of long COVID, because I don't believe that long COVID is in any way medically unexplained. I think we just don't have the med- full set of medical explanations yet. We do have some very good data. There was a wonderful explainer done this morning by David Petrino at Mount Sinai, who's a source in my book. I write about the work that Mount Sinai is doing at the post-COVID center and some of his work in his clinic. And, you know, we're finding evidence of viral persistence in some studies are showing pockets of virus, RNA fragments. Um, other studies are showing autoimmune activity. There's a lot of evidence of pathophysiology that's quite clear, quite consistent across patients. How does this connect to the invisible kingdom? Why did I include long COVID? Because a lot of what the kind of condition I'm writing about in the book really turn out to be what we might call and what some researchers are calling infection-associated conditions, which is to say if we once thought that infections behaved similarly in everyone's bodies, right, that if a definition of the germ theory of one of Koch's postulates was that a pathogen... You can know it because it acts similarly across people's bodies. Actually, as the pandemic vividly dramatized, is that we all might respond quite differently to a pathogen, right? Even a health, some, the mystery of COVID is why some healthy 30-year-olds were dying of it or in the hospital for weeks while you know, people much older were doing fine. Um, so long COVID, myalgic encephalomyelitis, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome... Um, some of autoimmune diseases, autoimmune diseases we know can be triggered by viruses. There's a great study recently looking at multiple sclerosis and its relationship to Epstein-Barr virus, which also shows up in long COVID. Um, So there's this whole world of infection-associated conditions that I'm exploring, and part of what I'm arguing in the book and part of the conversation I'm trying to galvanize is one where we do see these as not being medically unexplained symptoms, but as being symptoms that we have to dig deeper to find the answers for, and we need a lot of research now to, to go into it. Am I hopeful? I mean, the The scope of long COVID is shining a light on these conditions and bringing research funding to infection-associated illness in a way that um, is hopeful, right? But I do think that we need as a nation and as scientists and healthcare workers and journalists like me to really focus the conversation to look at you know, to push back against these narratives that you see that, oh, long COVID is, you know, it's psychosomatic, it's anxiety. There's some really great animal studies that have come out in the past month or two, which, you know, show golden hamsters with almost 
the exact same biomarkers and pathophysiology as people with long COVID, exhibiting long COVID symptoms, right? Those hamsters are not anxious, right? <laughs> They're not like, oh, COVID is coming. It's a pandemic. I'm so stressed. I might not get my Rice Krispies, right? They actually have like the same thing. So I feel like I just don't want to, you know, I'm like, let's just start there with the science. Let's let science actually lead the way rather than these pre-existing narratives we have in our head about people with, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome are malingerers or attention seekers, right? I want to clear the webs of the narrative and, again, put that, that more scientific narrative in its place. Right. I mean, I think that when doctors say medically unexplained symptoms, they're leaving off two really important words. Right. Medically unexplained to me. Right. <laughs> you know? Thank you, Lisa. Okay, I couldn't say it better. I'm just going to start tweeting that. <laughs> That's right. I mean, that's, that's right. And I mean, it's a problem, right? It's not, not a problem, right? What do you do as a clinician? What do you do as a hospital with patients you don't know how to treat? That is a real problem. Um, and that's where I think, you know, bringing in medical education around chronic illness care, listening to patients about what they're looking for, realizing that sometimes that I don't know, but I see you can, can go a long way, can help. Okay. Last question. After your long journey, what advice do you have for others who are struggling with an illness that medicine doesn't seem to be able to find answers for, at least in their initial stages? What should they do when they go to see a doctor? Yeah. Um, I think the number one thing is that, you know, when I think about, okay, if I could go back in time and give myself advice, I spent too long um, distrusting my own body and distrusting what I knew to be abnormal about what was happening. And I say knew, knowing is complicated. One of the things I write about in this book is the ways in which subjectivity is influenced by authority and expertise. And, but at rock bottom, if I really listened to my own gut instincts, I, I knew that I did not feel the way I once had. So I do think finding that doctor who's comfortable in the space of uncertainty, who can be a true partner, who can listen to you, who is willing to take what you're saying on board, who might say to you not, you know, what's going, you know, just tell me your symptoms, but something like what's bothering you the most, what's impacting your life the most. I think there are potential models in palliative illness care, right, which is an advance we made in medicine, a whole area where we transformed how we deliver care to people who are terminally ill. And I think we need something analogous for these kinds of chronic illnesses. Finding academic medical centers that can offer coordinated care is a really important thing. Um, too much care is siloed. I calculated at one point that I was spending 25% of my work days going from doctor to doctor and trying to get them to communicate with one another. But I will finally say that I actually think the onus is not on the individual person with an illness. The onus is on us, somewhere like Aspen Ideas, to start to think about what does it take to deliver care to the millions of people with long COVID, to the millions of people with autoimmune disease. What, what do we actually do if we want to build a new system for this kind of delivery of care, as we've done for cancer, as we've done for palliative care, right? The models are there. Now we need to say, we really have this need. Um, these diseases constitute a major disease burden for America. They constitute a huge amount of, of our costs and our expenditures, our chronic illness costs. So 
there's a lot of reasons and a lot of incentives for us um, beyond the, the human one of wanting to help the suffering to, to get this right, I think. It's true. I think that the system has an obligation to change in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, do do? what worked for you? Yeah. I mean, finally, yeah. you figured. Yeah. I, you know what, I just like connected to the really stubborn Irish American part of myself. I have a very stubborn father and I was just like, no, something's wrong. And I just kept going to doctors. I doctor shopped, right? Which is always a sign that you're like a a terrible patient. But I did. I, I, and I hid that I was doctor shopping (laughs) and I started to edit the symptoms I told my doctors about because I had to work to present myself as credible. Um, And I had an amazing network. I was a journalist who had worked at The New Yorker. I I just asked everyone I knew, who should I see? Who will listen to me? Who will help me? And eventually, I really did get to those doctors. Um, I was diagnosed with two autoimmune diseases. I have something called POTS, which people with long COVID have, a kind of dysautonomia. And I had Lyme disease that had never been treated. And as soon as I was treated with three weeks of antibiotics... I got much better, right? It was complicated. There were after effects, but it was clear that, you know, this had been available all this time, right? But that doesn't help me, the the journalist, the person who cares about others, right? Because I got better, but what happens to all the people who don't have that access to care? That's why I'm spent 10 years writing this book and I'm here talking to all of you because we really do owe it. Um, to people to get beyond the, like, just keep trying doctors randomly. I, I will tell you, heartbreakingly, hundreds of people have written to me since the book came out in March, and they say, my child is sick, my husband is sick, my father is sick, my mother is sick. Where should we go? And I spent 10 years researching, and I don't know what to tell them because we don't have the system in place. And that goes back to the where science is silent narrative creeps in because it leaves you susceptible to, you know, people who are in it just to make a buck from alternative medicine. I was very helped by a lot of alternative medicine, by acupuncture in particular, but very hard to sort through where you go, whom you turn for help. And we need to do better and we need to use the power of research and the power of innovation to deliver that care. Well, thank you. I think your book is, I know you didn't set out to do this this way, but it's kind of an instruction manual on this is how to think about what's going on and this is how to try to work the system. And I think it's been, it taught me a lot. Yeah. And I'm, you know, somebody on the other end. So thank you. No, thank you. That means a lot. Because I really wrote it for doctors and healthcare workers too, right? I mean, it's, it's, the last thing I'll say there is that one of the tragedies, I think, is that there were many healthcare workers along the way I met who wanted to be able to deliver care. And the system is stacked against them. And it's terrible, right? And, and this is a book looking at a system that's flawed and looking for answers. It's not a book attacking doctors, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> it didn't feel that good, way. Good, good, good. So... Um, we have a few minutes for questions, if anybody has any questions. Um, hang on a second. I think there's, um, there's a gentleman here. Yeah. And his, wait. Oh. No, no, we need <laughs> microphones. Uh, I've been taking care of people with diabetes for the last 40 years. There's a constituency out there that you can tap yeah. who have 
diagnosable chronic disease who face this same sort of thing. And your, your final comment about changing the system, I think, is absolutely critical. The American medical system is based upon acute care. Let's give you an antibiotic, you're cured. Let's do a bypass, you're cured. And you walk away. We don't have the system set up to do chronic care management when we know what the disease is, much less when we don't. I've spent 40 years in academic medicine And the best doctors I know are the ones who can say, I don't know. I just resonate so much with what you're saying. One of my, a really close coworker of mine has diabetes and, you know, very clear, you know, we know a lot about diabetes, but he's experiencing many of the same, also crises of identity that are questions that really go in a certain way outside of the bounds of the doctor's office. But when, you know, I'm a poet, um, my, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. My grandmother was delivered by William Carlos Williams. Um, <laughs> and he's a poet who's had a lot of influence on me. So I always like to tell my poet friends, well, I wouldn't be here without Williams. And I don't just mean poetically. She was a breach and it was a very challenging birth. Anyway, <laughs> why do I say that? Because I do believe romantically in, and maybe not romantically, I, Medicine is unlike any other profession because at its heart is this ethic of care for the most intimate parts of our lives, birth, death, illness, and the most vulnerable. So yeah, we need a system that allows us to deliver that care to the chronically ill who are contending constantly with this and that doesn't burn out doctors along the way and and nurses and other healthcare workers, especially right now. Yeah, exactly. Other questions? Uh, so kind of a combination question um first megan um i know communities on like facebook and things like that have a huge role in both supporting patients and in helping drive the kinds of questions you should have with your doctor in order to get to a diagnosis and similarly what happens from your perspective as a healthcare provider lisa when somebody comes in and says i've read this yeah. and i think it could be this because i think that's one of those places where it's it's sometimes dismissed because it's not from a medical source it's from a community source but sometimes especially in the rare and orphan diseases or in the unknown conditions that's the place where people get answers I absolutely so we didn't talk too much about this but a lot of the book is about um talks about patient communities and I think a key takeaway of the book or what I hope would be a key takeaway about the book is that we have to center patients' voices. Um, I know that's really complicated. I know that in an age of disinformation and distrust, that's a really complicated thing for for doctors. I mean, I've seen it happen. I, I understand how challenging it is. But we have to start by trying to get to a, a place of repair and trust where we're Patients and people with illness can feel heard by, by healthcare workers, and healthcare workers learn to listen. And I, I sometimes think it's like a, a bad relationship, right? Where this would happen with some of my doctors, they would in, instinctively distrust as soon as I said, Well, I read this, right? And one said, Well, you know, I don't know if you can understand the complexities of this. And I wanted to be like, I graduated magna cum laude from Yale. Like, screw you. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't, shouldn't even take that credit, credential, though, right? It should be like, I'm in my body, right? I'm in my body. Um, so 
I, I, I think it's, a, it's really complicated, but absolutely necessary um, for our medical system to start centering patients. Again, more urgent than ever with long COVID. The reason we're as far along in long COVID research as we are is because of the persistence of patient advocacy groups like um, Body Politic and Patient-Led, I'm going to blank on the name, Collaborate, collaborate anyway, the Patient-Led Coalition there, other groups on Facebook. You know, it was a person living with long COVID who gave it the name. So we, we really need to get to that point where we are listening to the wisdom that patients do have, and we also make space for patients to read. The Internet's not going away. Patients are, people are always going to bring what they've read into the, into the doctor's office. I had an interesting conversation with Jack, Jack Cochran, the former director of the Permanente Federation, and he said... This is really challenging for doctors and healthcare workers because we're used to that asymmetric relationship of having expertise. But he said in many cases, patients who do have a very specific condition might end up knowing as much or more or at least be onto something. And so I'll say quickly, one thing my doctors do with me is I will bring studies in and um, I'll say, look, this feels like this is relevant to what's going on and here's my question. And then my doctor's great. She'll be like, you're misreading this part of the science. This is what this really means. And then she'll say, this part is totally right. So she actively engages in dialogue with me around, because there's some stuff I don't understand. And I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, a doctor's encounter is really a, a meeting of two experts. Sure, doctor maybe, <laughs> maybe the expert in science and medicine, but certainly the patient is undoubtedly the expert in what they're experiencing. Right. I saw other hands. Yeah. Uh, yes, this lady and then this man. Hi, thank you. Um, I am increasingly very interested in how this interplays with this booming wellness market. You talked about alternative medicines. Especially with female health, there's been so much documented that women are not believed about their own pain, about their own experiences. Yeah. So they seek out unproven theories, whether it's supplements outside FDA, whether it's things from goop, you know, whatever it is. And they risk their lives. They spend lots of money, but it's a systemic issue, right? We're not believed in the doctor's office. Doctors don't have enough time for us. So if you had like a magic wand, what would be kind of like the systemic solutions? Because this is very personal, but it happens to millions of people. And we're seeing kind of this industry yeah. trying to fill in yeah. this gap. And some of it is good, but a lot of it is not great. Yeah, so there's an entire chapter, not to like push my book on you, but if you buy the book, <laughs> there's a whole chapter about exactly this question. Um, and it's really complicated, as you say. I think that this is part of what we mean about narrative creeping in. There, there's two things. One is you don't have answers, so you'll try almost anything at a certain point. That's actually rational, right? That, that's one of the things I try to show is that that's actually a rational choice as your, as your quality of life diminishes and you don't get care. But I think what's also really complicated, and there's a large section of the book that's about this, is that emerging science tells us that this category of disease I'm interested in in particular, but a lot of diseases more broadly, responds to lifestyle modulation, to modulating stress, changing your sleep, changing your diet, 
Um, many people with infection-associated diseases or immunological problems have food sensitivities. David Petrino was talking about that this morning, that at Mount Sinai they're seeing post-COVID patients with, like, sudden documented food sensitivities, right? So there's, we're, we're entangled creatures. Our wellness is part of our physical health, right? It's wild that we all sort of still talk like Descartes, right? Like the mind's <laughs> over here and the body's over, we're all, you know. Um, so I don't have a magic wand, but I think we do need a lot more research into how to practice personalized medicine that helps people figure out things like food sensitivities. As someone who did buy a lot of supplements and go to a lot of integrative doctors, some of whom really helped me, uh, I struggled because I am a journalist. I like facts. I like to know. And I finally found one practitioner who was like, look, I don't like to just sell you 30 supplements and see you in a month. He's like, I know you're desperate for answers. I'm going to give you one supplement. Here's the sourcing. Here's why I think it's safe. Here's the data. Let's try this. I want you to keep a journal and let's see if it does anything. So there was this very systemic way of, systematic rather, of looking at what worked for me. And it helped me identify like two supplements that I really did benefit from. But it's a problem, right? Because the models right now that you, you go to in a lot of integrative centers, which I think have something to offer, there's, there's also just this, yeah, selling wellness. Or, you know, I go buy something that I read about on Goop from Amazon, and two days later it's there, and I don't know what's in it. <laughs> so we, we, we need to... But again, what I would say is I think we start by saying this isn't going away. How do we improve it, right? I do think that's the starting place. Yes, sir. I, I think this is the last question we have time for. I think you said that it wasn't until 12 years had passed that you res, uh, took the test that started to explain your illness. Did you ever go back and in, uh, ask the doctors who didn't uh, do those tests for 12 years what motivated them not to do it and what motivated your last doctor to perform those tests? Yeah, that's such a great question. I've thought about this so much. And no, I did not, in the main, go back to any of them. And this is a problem, right? Because it means that learning loop is not there. I did. I still have the same dermatologist. And because one of my early symptoms was these sort of electric shocks all over my arms and legs, my, my GP had sent me to him. And he had been like, maybe it's dry skin, but it doesn't sound like it. He took it pretty seriously, and he did a bunch of tests. And to his credit, I still see him. I love him. He told me, he's like, you know what? I went and I looked at your lab work and he said, you had a very positive ANA and I didn't tell you because a lot of people have positive ANAs and you didn't have anything else and you were 22 years old. So I just thought, eh, it's not the cause of your... But that might have been an important clue in what, because I have autoimmune disease, right? So yeah, I did not. And I think this is something I asked a lot of people and most of us do not go back to our previous doctors and say, look, you missed this. I'll say quickly, when I interviewed these close to 100 patients, um, all of them had a documented either autoimmune disease or some other condition, chronic condition. And 96 of them had been told that they were either hypochondriacs or suffering from anxiety within three years of their diagnoses, which were diagnoses like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, others that are a little bit less common. Yeah. Okay, one more. one more question. 
Thank you so much for this. It's been awesome. I'm the daughter of a mother with chronic fatigue and a sister of a brother with chronic fatigue who's also a poet. Um, and it's so challenging to support as a family member and friend. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit. I love your anecdote about the doctor giving you that recognition. Yeah. Is there stuff family or friends have done that was super supportive or was not super supportive? Would just love insights as a daughter and sister. Yeah. There's a quote from the 19th century French writer Alphonse Daudet, who's um, a novelist who lived with syphilis at a time when it was poorly understood and kind of chronic until you died. And he says this, he, he tried to write a book about his experience and failed to. It's a series of fragments. Um, and he says something incredible in that book that I always share with people, which is he said, pain is always new to the sufferer but everyone around you gets used to it when you have a chronic illness. And, and again, this is one reason I try to use the like, poet in me to animate this experience, which is that every day it's a surprise, right? Um, again, I'm much better now. I have very limited symptoms. But when a flare comes, it's a surprise, and it's debilitating almost as much as from at the very beginning. So I think if we can use our imaginations to imagine our way into that sort of fresh sense of surprise, right? Because when we're on the outside, we do actually get used to someone else's suffering. The other thing I'll say is very analogous to that neurologist, a really good friend of mine, one day when I was having quite horrific electric shocks and they caused me to sort of spasm a little and you know, flinch, she could see I was flinching, and I said to her, I mostly didn't tell people ever when I was experiencing this, but I said to her, look, I'm, this is what's going on. And she just said, she just paused, and she really looked at me, and she just said, I can really see your suffering. I'm just so sorry. She didn't try to fix it. She didn't try to find a solution or minimize it. She just really made it clear that she was witnessing it, hard to do, but I think those acts of witness are, are really so much more valuable than anyone who's not suffering from an illness could know. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I think we have to stop there, but thank you. Thank you all so for coming much. out today. Thank you. Megan O'Rourke is the author of the books The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, and The Long Goodbye. She's also published three poetry collections, and her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, among other publications. O'Rourke teaches at Yale University, where she is the editor of the Yale Law Review. Lisa Sanders teaches in the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Yale School of Medicine. She created and writes the bi-weekly diagnosis column for The New York Times Magazine, which inspired the hit television series House MD. Sanders also co-created a series of Netflix documentaries that follow patients searching for a diagnosis using crowdsourcing. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health Team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.